The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Continue our study of Luke's Gospel this morning, wrapping up our look at the ministry of John the Baptist. I'm going to read to you verses 15 through 20 this morning. We'll give attention mainly to verses 18 through 20. Luke writes, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the weed into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. The early church father, Tertullian, made a statement that has has rung throughout history from the time that he said it to our day. He said a very simple thing. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He spoke to a very real reality in his day, a reality that has endured all throughout church history, even up to our own, that the world is a dangerous place to live and be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many around the world throughout the centuries have given their lives in the cause of Christ. Many, even this morning, gather and worship in various places around our world at the fear of death. We don't have time this morning to trek all throughout church history and track this, but I call your attention to just a couple of examples. Back in the mid-1940s, in Germany, as Nazism was, was on the rise and Adolf Hitler had become chancellor of the nation, he began a, a merciless persecution of German Jews. He weaponized the, the fear of communism and under the guise of national security set out to eradicate an entire part of the human population. He had one major obstacle to over, overcome in the midst of his quest, and that was the, the German evangelical church, because the, the church of Jesus Christ has always stood as a bulwark against tyranny and against open sin. And so Hitler began his campaign to gain the, the allegiance of the church, and He was largely successful in that, but in the mix of that, there was one pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you've heard of him. He spoke up against 
the atrocities of Hitler and those that he led. And he urged the leaders of the German evangelical church to stand up and to have some courage and to speak the truth in the face of all these atrocities. But his cries largely fell on, on deaf ears as the church largely folded clergy and all under pressure. Most of the German evangelical church uh, capitulated almost to every one of Hitler's demands, including barring, quote, non-Aryans from becoming ministers and replacing the Bible with Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiographical manifesto in the service. In the midst of that, Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on the radio and he says over the public airways things like this, it's high time we broke with our theologically based restraint toward the state's, state's actions, which after all is only fear. Speak out for those who cannot speak. And he went on to talk about the church of Jesus Christ. And he said things over the public airways like this. He said, there is one altar in the church and it's the altar to God, not to any man. He said there's one message that the church proclaims, and that's the message of faith in God, not the message of any man. He was a man of courage, a man of conviction, in the face of much cowardice. Now, there was a price to be paid. He was arrested and put in prison, eventually sent to a concentration camp. And on Easter Sunday, April the 7th, 1945, he was transferred to a place called Flossburg, and he was given a court-martial, and the next morning, he was hung in a concentration camp by his Nazi captors. Just before his execution, Bonhoeffer told his cellmate this. He said, quote, This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. The camp doctor who witnessed the execution later wrote this. He said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed. So devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed a few steps to the gallows. Brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, he said, I've hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. If you rewind, or excuse me, if you fast forward history just a tad, actually rewind a bit, and you go back to the the Protestant Reformation in England, you'll hear of a man by the name of John Rogers. Maybe you've heard of him, if you've read any church history. John Rogers was a, a pastor, a Protestant pastor. He's best known as an assistant to William Tyndale. William Tyndale was the one who was a pioneer in translating the Bible into English for common people to be able to read. He was vehemently opposed by the government of his day, persecuted at the threat of his life, and ultimately killed. He didn't complete his translation into English, but John Rogers was his assistant who did, following Tyndale's death, complete the translation of the Bible into English. He did it under the fictitious name Thomas Matthews, 
because he knew his life was threatened. Eventually, he was captured and arrested and imprisoned for a year. And upon his death sentence, he, he begged Lord Stephen Gardner to be able to speak a few words to his wife. To which Gardner replied that he wasn't legally married because he had once been a Catholic priest and his family wasn't even recognized. On February, 4th, 9, February the 4th of that year, he was marched out of prison and he was, he, was, he was walked to Smithfield, which was actually the place where he had pastored and preached. And it was there that a stake was erected on which he would be burned. What's interesting about the death of John Rogers is as he walked uh, from the prison to Smithfield to the stake, the church historians tell us that the streets were lined with people, largely his congregation. And they were cheering him on. Historians tell us that as he marched down the road toward Smithfield and toward the stake, he caught sight of his, his wife and his ten children, the youngest of which he had never met because the child was born while he was in prison. They were able to exchange a few words along the road. History tells us that Rogers sang Psalm 51. as he marched toward the stake. John Fox, in his book, The Fox's Book of Martyrs, says this. He says, The fire was put upon him, and when it had taken hold both upon his legs and shoulders, he, as one feeling no smart, washed his hands in the flame as though it had been in cold water. And after lifting his hands unto heaven, not removing the same until such time as the devouring fire had consumed them, most mildly, this happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly father. There was a French ambassador at the time by the name of Noales who wrote later of this and particularly of the support given by the congregation to John Rogers. He said this, quote, even his children assisted it. Comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if he had been led to a wedding rather than an execution. Well, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Rogers was a man of courage, a courage that cost him his life. These are not, not isolated examples in church history. They're not even isolated examples today. If you were to go to a website of the Voice of the Martyrs today, you would find all sorts of information about the persecution of believers around the world. You would find a statistic that says since Jesus walked on the earth, it's estimated that about 70 million people have been killed for the cause of Christ. 70 million people. Let that sink in for a moment. I read this week that the 20th century alone, that in the 20th century alone, there were more people killed for faith in Christ than in all prior centuries added together. Open Doors USA reports just in the year 2020, and this is a very conservative estimate, that on average, every day, eight people are killed for faith in Christ. 
in the top 50 persecuted countries around the world. Eight people every day. We live largely isolated from that reality because it's a threat we don't largely face. But there are courageous believers all around the world who face it on a regular basis. And if you were to follow this bloody trail from 2021 all the way back through church history, you would find that the first drop of blood shed for the cause of Christ as a martyr takes you right back to a man named John the Baptist, who we study in Luke chapter 3. Today we look at John's ministry at the end of it, at least, and we see how it came to a, to a close. We, we've sort of been looking at John's gospel, the way Luke presents it to us in Luke chapter 3 in a couple of ways. We've looked at sort of John's background. We've looked at John's message. We've looked very closely at the content of what he preached. And beginning last week and concluding today, we're looking at John's character. We're looking at the character of a man of God. And we've been sort of looking at that, trying to assess whether that character is reflected in our own lives. And last week we began to see a, a little bit of his character. We, we saw that he was a humble man. We saw that he was a man who understood his place, even though he was the most popular preacher of his day. Even though crowds were flocking to hear them, hear him, he understood who he was in light of Christ. He never got a big head. He never got puffed up with pride. He always understood that Christ was the bridegroom and, the, and he was the the best man, that, that Christ was the VIP, and, and he was just the, the one who came before him, the doorman, if you will. And so he says things like, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to, to take off his sandals. He must increase, and I must decrease. He was a man of great humility, and he was a man who was Christ-exalting. He preached a message that focused on Christ, that called people to faith in the good news of Jesus. And he was focused largely on that. But today I want you to see really the last piece of John's character that we see in verses 18 through 20. I want you to see him as a man who had a gospel-driven courage, a gospel-driven courage. Those things I'm going to sort of shape up as two different things, but really they're one thing that's sort of hard to separate out. His, his courage was, was birthed out of this gospel drive that he had. But let's look at this gospel-driven piece first, and then we'll spend some time thinking about courage. On verse 18, Luke tells us, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He preached good news. Now, if you've been trekking along with John's preaching, you might stop and say, hold the phone. Wait a minute. I know what John was preaching. How do, you, how do you conclude that that's good news? If you remember John's message here recorded in Luke, the very first thing that Luke tells us, he says to the crowd is, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from God's wrath? That doesn't sound very welcoming and very good. He ends that message with talking about uh, the Messiah coming and having a winnowing fork in his hand and burning up chaff, talking about really the judgment and damnation of those who reject the Lord Jesus in the end. It was a hard message filled with a lot of bad news. And yet here Luke says that what consumed John and what he preached was good news. He preached good news. That word good news in Greek could be translated as it is here in the ESV, good news, or as it is in other translations, the gospel. It's the same thing. And 
you say, if that's the good news, I'd hate to hear the bad news. John had a lot to say, apparently. We're told here by Luke that it was with many other exhortations that he preached the good news. So John had a lot to say. Luke only recorded for us a sample. His ministry lasted for about one year. That was the whole extent of the ministry of John the Baptist. One year, and throughout that year, he preached many sermons, and he preached a lot, and he spoke a lot. But the theme of his life and his ministry and his message was the good news, the gospel, that the Messiah was coming to take away the sins of the world. And then men and women needed to repent of their sin and make ready to place their faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who was to come. It's the gospel. It's a simple message. It's a simple message that basically encapsulates a few thoughts, that all people are sinners by nature and by choice. And then that sin has a price. The wages of sin is death, an eternal separation from God forever, whereby we face the wrath of God on our sin, the just wrath of God on our sin. And beyond that, our good works can't save us. We have a death sentence upon our head because of our sin, and there's not enough good works that we could ever possibly do to redeem us. There's no amount of religious activity that we can engage in to make up for the sin debt that we owe. We are, in fact, hopeless. That's the bad news that every person has to come to terms with before they can understand the glory of the good news. It's only in light of the reality that I'm a sinner. It's only in light of the reality that the wages of sin, of my sin, is eternal death. It's only in light of the reality that I cannot be good enough or religious enough to save myself that John 3.16 makes any sense to me. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The good news is that while I am under a death sentence, that I'm not hopeless because God has made a way in his son Jesus Christ that I might be saved. The gospel is good news that begins with bad news, and we haven't shared the full good news if we don't share the bad news. John the Baptist was a gospel-driven man. His message was the good news that included the bad news. And that was what he preached, and that was what he focused on. John was not a man who preached himself, he preached the gospel. He was not a man who preached politics, he was a man who preached the gospel. He was not a man who stood up and gave a bunch of self-help talks, he was a man who preached the gospel. He was not a man who stood in a pulpit or stood by the, the River Jordan and preached pet doctrines. He was a man whose life was given over to the gospel. He was not a man who chased every cultural bandwagon. He was a man who was laser-focused on the good news, the gospel. He was not a man who performed a stand-up comedy act. He was a man who preached the gospel. Listen, there are times when we need to address cultural issues, and we'll see shortly. John did that. There's a time when we need to work toward precision in our doctrine and make sure we understand things rightly. And there's a time to use humor as a means to communicate. But if any of those things begin to eclipse the gospel in our mind, in our heart, in our thoughts, and out of our lips, then we're out of balance as people of God. 
And John is a model for us of a man who preached many things, but he kept the main thing, the main thing. I'll never forget there was a man that I encountered in the church early in my time, probably 18 or so years ago. A man, we'll just call him John. Not any John who's actually in the room right now. In case you know a John that's in the room, maybe looking at him like, yeah, we heard about you this morning. Not, it's not him, it's a different guy. His name's not even John, but that's what I'm gonna call him. And I remember John, this guy who was obsessed with the doctrine of election. Somehow this had come to uh, come across his radar and he had never heard it before and he had believed it and embraced it and it was all he ever wanted to talk about. And I mean for years I knew this guy and it didn't matter what subject you brought up with him, somehow he had some ingenious way to bring it full circle back to the doctrine of election. And I always wondered about that guy. Is there anything else you know to talk about? How about the gospel? It was after a year he had left the church and years later he was being ordained in another congregation and he invited me to the ordination ceremony and I went and he had an opportunity to speak at his ordination. What do you think John spoke about? It was the doctrine of election. And for heaven's sakes, man, I get it. It's a doctrine. It's in the Bible. It's taught. It's true, but it's not the main thing. What about the gospel? John was a man who was gospel-driven. He talked about many things, but the main thing was the main thing. And if you and I are going to be faithful, faithful teachers, preachers, sharers of the gospel, we'll keep the main thing the main thing too. We'll be gospel-driven. But beyond that, John was a man who was courageous. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. We capture this in verses 19 through 20 here in Luke's gospel where Luke tells us that uh, Herod the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by him for Herodias, and for all the evil things that he had done, had John locked up in prison. Now, I need to make a note here, just an interpretive note. We're studying Luke's gospel. You need to understand something about Luke. He isn't always working in chronological order. Here's a perfect example of where Luke is not moving in chronological order. What Luke is doing here is he's wrapping up in his gospel his attention to John the Baptist, and he's turning the camera from John to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he takes the end of John's life, which happens later in history, and he pulls it forward in his gospel and includes a note about it right here. Uh, So what he talks about here happens later chronologically. But for Luke's purpose, he doesn't want to talk about John anymore, and he doesn't after verse 20. He focuses on Jesus. But he does tell us here something about the end of John's life and ministry. And what he tells us involves a man by the name of Herod. Herod the Tetrarch, he calls him. Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas. He was the the son of Herod the Great. Maybe you heard of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was only great depending on how you define greatness. He was was a pretty ruthless human being. But when he died, he he, he divided his kingdom up among his three sons. And Herod Antipas was one of those three sons who got a portion of his father's kingdom. And he ruled somewhere around 4 BC to about 39 AD. So pretty much the whole sweep of the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ. And so when you're reading your New Testament, with the exception of the early birth narratives of Jesus, when you see Herod mentioned, it's usually Herod Antipas. He's not a Jewish man. He was an Idumean by birth. His mother, at least, was, or excuse me, his father was, and his mother was a Samaritan. Uh, He was a cold-blooded, evil ruler. That's what you need to know about Herod Antipas. He was just a cold-blooded, evil man. Just a couple of examples. One time, he had the entire Jewish Sanhedrin executed because they challenged his authority. 
had one of his wives and at least two of his sons executed for various reasons. He's perhaps most well known for a couple of years after the birth of Christ, having all the, all the children, two and younger, in Bethlehem slaughtered in an attempt to squelch the Messiah. Those are just, a, just some highlights. That's kind of like the highlight reel of Herod Antipas. But he did something else that attracted the attention of John the Baptist, something else that John could not ignore, something else that drew a public rebuke from John. And Luke here tells us it has something to do with someone called Herodias, who was his brother's wife. Well, Luke doesn't elaborate on this, but thankfully Mark and Matthew do. If you want to flip in your Bible to Mark chapter 6, you get the backstory on this, and it's worth noting. It says there in verse 17 of chapter 6 that it was Herod, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, quote, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe, which means in prison. So here's the backstory. On a visit to Rome one day, Herod is, gets involved with his brother's wife, Herodias. They get involved in a sexual relationship, and Herod is a, a selfish jerk, and Herodias will find is a, a ruthless, ruthless opportunist. And it was a match made in heaven, if you will, or somewhere else. And these two come up with a plan. They're going to get married. There was only two problems. They were both already married, problem number one. But it was no problem for them. They just agreed, we'll both leave our spouses and marry one another, which later becomes a problem for Herod because he was previously, or at the time, he was married to the wife of a king called Eretus, who was a powerful king who became infuriated after this happened and raised up an army and pretty much went to war against Herod and decimated Herod's army. He would have killed Herod if Rome hadn't intervened. But lust has no sensibility and no bounds, right? So problem number one is they were both married. Problem number two is she was also his niece. We call that incest. Both were forbidden in the law of God. Both of them were blatant, public, sinful violations of God's law. And everybody knew about it, including John the Baptist. And John was a man who was courageous. He had the courage to publicly rebuke Herod for this behavior. In fact, Mark tells us, it says, he had been saying to Herod. The idea is then that he just said at one time that this had been an ongoing thing that John had been confronting the king about. This public, blatant sin in his life. Now, we don't know if, if John had a private audience with Herod or if it was just a part of his public preaching. It was likely that it was both. But doing what John was doing was extremely dangerous. Herod was a powerful man. He was a very powerful man. He had enormous power. And people who flaunt their sin usually don't do very well with rebuke. But John was a godly man of courage. He knew the difference between right and wrong. He knew the Messiah was on the way. In fact, the whole of John's ministry was a public ministry that was all about calling the nation to repentance, and he did not hesitate to place the same call on the man at the top, 
that he placed on everyone else. Even though he knew there could be a price to be paid. And indeed there was. You see, John feared God more than he feared Herod. Well, Herodias was infuriated by John's rebuke, and she wanted him dead. But Herod feared the crowds, and so instead of killing him, he has him thrown in prison. But a scorned, evil woman is not easily satisfied. And Mark goes on to tell us in verse 21 and following that an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee for when Herodias' daughter, her name we're told by historians is Salome, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, which means she, she pleased him erotically, let's just put it gently. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? And her mother, Herodias, this lovely lady, she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. What a gruesome story. What a gruesome end to a great, great man. What a sad reality for Herod, manipulated by his wife, makes a stupid and foolish oath and has the head of the greatest man by the mouth of Jesus who had ever lived up to that time served up on a platter to his vile wife. You see, we can't finish talking about John the Baptist without talking about courage. John knew the threat. He knew the potential cost, but he did not hesitate to call out sin in the most powerful man in his nation. Oh, how we need more men and women of courage in the world today. There is so much moral compromise. There is so much cowardice among God's people. There is such a, a, a thirst to be loved by the world and embraced by the world even among pastors and the clergy. Our culture, you, you have to know this if you're paying any attention, is becoming more and more hostile to the gospel of Jesus and more and more hostile, particularly to the moral implications of the gospel than it ever has. If you don't see it, you're not paying attention. There's a new political orthodoxy that's driven by identity politics, and you'll either affirm the politics of the pop culture or you're going to pay a price. There's a new sexual orthodoxy that's steamrolling its way through really every vestige of our culture. And any and every perversion is not only accepted, but it must be celebrated. And if you dare to resist, you'll be canceled. There's an immense attack on free speech under the guise of the public's best interest. 
major tech companies deeming themselves to be arbiters of public truth and you'll either bow to their orthodoxy or you'll be deplatformed it's happening all around and these are days that call for great courage among God's people this is not the time for the church to sink back in cowardice and run and hide in fear it's time for us to give a good long look at John the Baptist and the kind of courage that it takes to do what he did even when there's a price to be paid you and I are to be people of courage but in order to do that what is what is courage ask yourself a question if you if I were to walk around like some talk show host I won't do that this morning and put a microphone in your face and I said define for me courage what would you say what's courage think about that I'll give you like three seconds it's courage is it easy to define or is it hard to define how many of you think it's easy to find? Just nod your head. How, th- how many of you th- are finding it difficult to define? Now nod your head. Well, even people who write dictionaries can't really get it clear and straight, so I think it's hard to define. The American Heritage Dictionary says this. says, courage is the state or quality of mind or spirit that enables one to face danger, fear, or vicissitudes with self-possession, confidence, and resolution. I'm not even really sure what vicissitudes are, but... I think I get the gist of what they're saying. Merriam-Webster takes a different way. He says, the courage is mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. I think they, Merriam and Webster, get near it as well. But they don't fully capture the picture of, of courage, at least as the Bible defines courage. So I want to take like the last few minutes that we have here and sort of give you a picture of biblical courage and hopefully paint it in such a way that it makes sense to you and that you're drawn to it for yourself. Let me first say courage is not a few things. Courage is not recklessness. Courage courage is not adopting an attitude that says I'm just gonna be fearless and I'm gonna do anything and everything. Recklessness is foolishness, that's not courage. Doing dangerous and foolish things for thrills, that's not courage, that's stupidity. That's a sign of a small intellect. That's not courage. Courage is not pretending that everything is good when it's not. Courage is not putting on a plastic smile and a fake front and walking around when you're really suffering, but denying its reality and pretending that everything's fine on the outside. That's not courage. That's hypocrisy. Courage is not fearlessness either. A lot of times when you hear people define courage, they'll define courage as the opposite of fear, but courage is not the opposite of fear. The opposite of courage is cowardice, not fear. And it's an important distinction to make. Uh, fear is involved in both, but the difference between courage and cowardice is how one responds to a fearful situation. Both involve fear. In other words, courage is not the absence of fear, it's the ability to act and move and do what's right in the face of fear, in spite of fear. Whereas cowardice is the opposite of that. It's it's the inability to do what's right and good and proper and holy in the face of fear. It's not fearlessness. It's the ability to act in spite of fear. Frank Baum in his book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, I don't think that one's been canceled yet, has it? He said this, there's no living thing that is not afraid when it faces danger. 
The true courage is in facing danger when you're afraid. He's right. He's on to something there. Oliver Wendell Holmes says it this way, courage is about doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. No, courage is the ability to act in spite of fear. When the Bible says to us in various passages, we don't have time. I mean, I've got time, but you don't have time to trek all the way through the Bible and show you every example. There are many places where it says, fear not or do not be afraid, right? And it calls people to courage. But the issue there is not a call to eradicate the presence of fear in order to be courageous. What the Bible is calling us to when it says, fear not or don't be afraid, is it's saying to us, don't allow fear to overwhelm you and cause you to do what is ungodly and wrong. Don't allow fear to overflow its banks in your life and become destructive and lead you to sin. What does courage look like in the Bible? Well, it looks like a lot of things. Let me give you a few portraits. Courage looks like the ability to trust when you don't know the outcome. A good example would be in Genesis, right? The book of Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember a man by the name of Abram? If you read your Old Testament at all, you probably know something about him, later called Abraham. You may recall that God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's land to the land I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great. He calls Abram. He says, Abram, get up, pick up everything, leave and go to a place I'm going to send you. I'm not going to tell you where it is. You don't have a roadmap for how it's going to work out. But you go and trust me. It took courage for Abraham to pack up his family and to set out on a journey that he didn't know where it was going. He had to have the courage to trust God when the outcome was unknown. That's one kind of courage we see in the Bible, the courage to trust when we don't know how things are going to turn out. There's the courage to confront. We would look to someone like Moses who is, is out just doing his thing in the wilderness and God comes to him and says Moses I've heard the cries of my people and I'm tired of them being enslaved you are the man who's going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him to let my people go and Moses says whoa God you got the wrong man I I what if I go and they don't listen to me what if I go and he doesn't listen to me by the way I'm not a very good speaker I'm not very eloquent I kind of stutter God says Moses you're the man go and confront the the Pharaoh. It took courage for Moses to confront a powerful man. There's the courage to confront. There's the courage to obey. You may remember Daniel, the prophet of the Old Testament. You remember in Daniel's day, there are religious leaders who were jealous of him, and they are jealous of God's blessing in his life, and so they convinced the king to make a declaration that it's now against the law to pray to any man or any God other than the king. It became law that prayer was outlawed. Daniel was a man of prayer. So what does Daniel do? He's got a choice to make. Is he going to react in cowardice or is he going to react in courage? Daniel does what he did every day. He went home to his house as soon as he heard the law had been signed. And we're told in the the book of Daniel that he went up to the second floor where there's windows and he knelt down. And he prayed, just like he did every day. You see, Daniel had the courage to obey. It took courage to obey when it was against the law to obey. By the way, 
right now in Edmonton, Canada, there's a pastor by the name of James Coates. Maybe you read about him. He's in prison now for the third week in Edmonton, Canada for the great crime of opening his church and holding worship on Sunday against the health edicts of the Edmonton government in relation to COVID-19. So he's arrested and put into prison for obeying the Lord and conducting Christian worship. To tell you how upside down our world is, on just a, a week or so ago, the same Edmonton Police Service released on bail a convicted sex offender by the name of Kyle Larson and made a public statement that said, quote, the Edmonton Police Service has reasonable grounds to believe he will commit another sexual offense against someone under the age of 16 while in the community. We release the sex offender who we know is going to do it again and tell the public such and the pastor is, is denied bail because after all they said if we let him out he'll conduct worship again. There's a courage to obey. Sometimes obedience has a price. There's a courage to suffer. You remember three of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? It was out, it was outlawed. Here was the law. You have to bow down before this idol erected by the king. And these three faithful men of God said, absolutely not, we will not, we will not, at the threat of your life. And they stood before Nebuchadnezzar. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, here, you know, here's, here's the message, king. We're not going to bow down to your idol. Our God is able to save us and deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down. We'll suffer if that's what we have to do. There's a courage to suffer. And there's a kind of courage that's a courage to persevere, isn't there? At the end of Paul's life in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read this. Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul was a man who faced all sorts of challenges in his life, all sorts of opposition, but at the end of his life, he was able to say, I have fought the good fight. I kept the faith. I had the courage to persevere. I made it to the end. Those are all portraits of courage we see in the Bible. But if there's one message that the Bible has to tell us about courage, it's this. The true courage is birthed out of faith. Faith in what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's only a person of faith who can say with confidence, the Lord is with me. I don't have to be afraid. It's a person of faith who can say, the Lord is for me in every circumstance. He's not against me. It's the woman of faith who can face persecution and face challenge and face difficulty and face the threat of suffering and say, it doesn't matter how big my problem is, the Lord is bigger. It's the man of faith is the only one who can say, I can stand secure in whatever happens to me, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to obey the Lord, and the Lord can deliver me. And even if he doesn't, it's all right, because my future is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Bible has no sense for any kind of courage that isn't rooted in faith in the living God. If you're here this morning... 
and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because you've heard the same gospel that John the Baptist preached and you've responded by repenting of your sin and placing your faith wholly in the work of Christ on the cross for you. You have no reason to be anything but courageous because the Lord is with you and the Lord is for you and the Lord is bigger than anything you'll ever face. And the Lord is trustworthy. He's got a track record of being faithful to men and women just like you in every circumstance for centuries. And the Lord has secured your eternal destiny. Whatever happens to you here, there's something good in your future. If you're here this morning and you struggle with courage when life brings challenges, it's quite likely that it's because you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's because you're trying to gin up some sort of courage from within yourself. And it will never be sufficient for the task in front of you. If you want to be a person of courage, be a person of faith. Not just faith in general, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one John preached. The one Bonhoeffer believed. The one John Rogers worshipped on the way to the stake. the one John the Baptist preached. I promise you, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, he'll forgive your sins, he'll redeem your soul, and he'll birth inside of your soul a courage that comes from nowhere else. If you're a believer here, and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me ask you a question. Are you living out of that kind of courage? Or are you tempted to wither under the opposition that you face around you. We need to be courageous people. America needs courageous Christians now more than ever. It's not the time to fold. It's not the, the time to fawn after the world's love and affection. It's not the time to bandwagon over everything the world says is important. It's time to be people of courage. Not of not obnoxious people, but people of courage. Let me ask you this morning, where are you struggling with courage? Is there some situation in your life where you're dealing with the courage to trust? Where God has set something in front of you, you don't know how it's going to turn out, and you know what you need to do, but it's hard because you're afraid of what's going to happen? You need the courage to trust. Why don't you pray for that this morning? Are you the are you, are you in need of the courage to confront? Is there some situation in your life, some person in your life that you know you need to have that hard conversation with and it's taking courage and you're afraid because you don't know how they're going to react, but you need to have courage. You need the courage to confront. Maybe you need to pray for that this morning. Maybe there's some way in your life where, where you're struggling to obey the Lord because you're afraid that there might be a price to pay for being courageous and obeying the Lord like Daniel did. And you need the courage to obey courage to be willing to suffer if that's what it takes. Pray for that this morning. Maybe you've just been faithful for a while but the results aren't turning out the way you thought they were and you're tempted to give up and just quit and you need that, that courage to persevere. That courage that looks like waking up tomorrow morning and says I'm going to go at it again today and give it my best shot. Pray for that this morning. That's courage too. Wherever you're struggling in this area, pray that God would help you to be a courageous woman, a courageous man for Christ in our culture. We need you. The world needs me to be that. We need to be it together.
if one day I have to march through town and go to the stake to get burnt, you better be lining the, the streets, cheering me on, giving me some courage, helping me, because I'll need it. And I'm going to be there for you when you need it. And we need to be there for each other when we need it. Let's pray for that this morning. God, we understand these things. We know what it's like to face fear and to be afraid. We know what it's like to, to be unsettled and to not know how, how things are going to turn out. We know what it's like to be afraid. We know what it's like to be tempted to be cowards because we understand that being obedient it might bring suffering and, and, and confronting others with their sin may bring a harsh reaction. And we're tempted to just give up when things get hard and not persevere. Lord, we need courage. The world needs us to be courageous. But we're not naturally that. None of us. Not me, not anyone. We don't have it within us to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and have that kind of courage. But Lord, by your spirit within us, you can birth it. And so we pray right now for ourselves and we pray for one another that you would make us courageous people. That when people see us, they see men and women of faith who stand holding firmly to the, to the anchor who will never be moved. And Lord, for the man or the woman who's struggling with courage because they're not courageous and they're not courageous because they don't have faith in you. They're still in their sins. They've never repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus. I pray that right now, in these moments, your gospel would sound loud and clear in their hearts and they would be drawn to you in faith, believing, abandoning any hope in their good works and their religious activity, placing their faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, what you've done on the cross for us to save them and make them courageous. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work in our hearts as you see fit. For Christ's glory alone, amen.